Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Oh, welcome to the On The Tape podcast. Guy Adami, always joined by Danny Moses, Dan Nathan, and a third Dan today, Dan Greenhouse, the chief strategist at Solus Alternative Asset Management. Dan Greenhouse, it's great to have you back now for the third time. That is correct. Third time. Second time in person. First. Wait. Yes. Sec, second in person. Yeah. Uh, and I did yeah. one uh, remote. So that makes three. Yeah, that's I right. know math, one. Is, math is tough in our business, I know. But I do a lot of time thinking about titles for our show, as you know. Yeah. And Dan Greenhouse, I knew he was coming. It's been on our calendar for quite some time. So here's how my mind works. The first band I think of is Lifehouse. Now, Dan Nathan, you know Lifehouse. That's a John Alasia band, by oh, nice. the way. Remember that? Yeah. You and Me was one of their songs, yeah. Life, a three-person Love band, Alasia. like The Police. Yep. Then I'm like, nah, there's really nothing. So what do I think of next? I think, of course, Green Day. Now listen to the lines, listen to the lyrics from this song, and I'm going to tie this all together, okay? I want you to hear this. Welcome to a new kind of tension, okay? You follow this? Yep, yep. All across the alienation where everything isn't meant to be okay, in television, dreams of tomorrow... We're not the ones who are meant to follow. So let me sort of tie this all together. That, of course, is American Idiot. And I've been an American Idiot for quite some time yep. by trying to fight against this market. But if you think about the lyrics, what they're saying is everything ain't rosy all the time. You can watch TV. If you want that to happen, don't be listening to us, right? If you're looking for us to be all rosy and happy, don't be looking to us. However, with Dan Greenhouse, we have somebody who was with us in June of last year that not only was not an American idiot, he was an American sort of soothsayer because he saw everything that was happening. Dan, how are you? I'm doing okay. I almost saw Lifehouse. What they, happened? They opened for Counting Crows last summer. Wow. And really? I didn't go on purpose, but I did see Counting Crows. But life, You didn't go to see Lifehouse. So I did you not see Lifehouse. Lifehouse so, all right. So by the way, so Green Day has a new album coming out next week. It's called Saviors. 
Okay, so, so maybe save we'll be the same. And, and the first track that they released off of that was The American Dream is Killing Me, which is really interesting. Oh. Yeah, so that's coming out next week. Check that out in your favorite streaming Find your platform. your favorite podcast. There, or you go to the Tower Records on the west side. I'm sure you can pick which up the vinyl there. doesn't exist anymore. All right, so let, let's talk about this. Danny Moses, you know, you and Dan Greenhouse have gone back for a very long time in the business, right? And he was one of the first guys, you said, when we were kind of getting a little too bearish at one point, we got to bring Dan on here. And you had a fairly optimistic outlook for equities mid last year, Dan. And, and, you know, when you think about that time in June, it wasn't long after we just had, what, five regional banks go under. There was a whole host of, I think, trepidation about the property markets, mm -hmm. the credit markets. We we're all talking about what's on the other side of all this sort of stuff. What did you look through to get a kind of rosy outlook for the back half of 2024, at least as it relates to equities? So just for the backdrop for the viewers. So I, I spent much of 22 bearish. Mm -hmm. I was not someone who turned and immediately saw the calendar. I thought that would continue into 2023. But around February, things technically started to look in your favor. And then obviously the March happened and the banks happened. And I think the Fed's response mm -hmm. to the banks elicited the type of response that we've seen countless times over the last 15 years. Some people said the Fed's foaming the runway and it's going to be okay because it always is. And other people said the runway's on fire and that's the problem. And I think over the last 15 years where I have been more right than wrong, and I'm certainly not alone in this, is just saying, yeah, this is a problem that we have too much debt. Yeah, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet's too large. Yeah, insert problem here. In the short term, this stuff ends up working to your benefit. And I certainly did not see the stock market going up 25% by the end of the year. And let's full disclosure, by the end of October, the equal weight S&P 500 was still down on the year. So it's not as if there was this raging widespread bull market rally that took into a year end. A lot of it happened in the last two months. Fed President Christopher Waller mm -hmm. really drove those last two months. But the answer to your question 10 minutes later, what did I see? The bias to the market is always higher. Mm -hmm. And so I'm generally speaking, always looking for the optimistic take on things because that ends up being correct. Dan, I'm sorry I'm not there in person today. Three Dans in the studio would have been just way too, too, way too many, even though I go by Dan E because, you know, too many jokes about Dan's. As a matter of fact, Dan, that was a great OK computer you did with Dan Niles. I think it was, would you call it? Only Dan's talk tech. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, and we, we started that one off, Danny, by saying we've been called Daniel Son, Danny Boy, D Dan the Man, all that sort of thing. You know, we just got right up in there. We could have each all had one of those names right now. But yeah, actually, check that one out. We went over some of his top picks, not just in tech, but also in biotech mm. and the like. And Dan, I've known him for over two decades, and I think he's a genius investor. So that would be Dan, who runs the Satori Fund. Dan now check that out. Thank you, Danny, for the shout out there. So Dan, you're right. I mean, we look back in 2023, the BTFP that came in line once it be imploded, and then obviously the debt ceiling, which got lifted, really opened the door, I think, to a chase later in the year, I, I think, when it manifested itself. And there was reasons enough to believe that we may indeed still have somewhat of a soft landing, I'm not sure. But it's amazing to me is that we're still prisoner to the Fed and everything that they do. And we're, you know, we pull forward rate cuts, we push out rate cuts. As a matter of fact, today, just on the CPI number alone, and the core was in line, I guess. But now I'm looking right now, which is crazy. There's now a 71% chance of a rate cut in the March meeting. It was 65 or 66 before the CPI print this morning. It dropped to 61. So you want to equate the S&P's comeback today over the period of the day. It really is just that simple. And I think you said it best, Dan, and I've learned the hard way not to fight the Fed, obviously, over time. But is that really all we're dealing with here? Because it feels like 
that's the only driver for the markets right now. Rates, I would say more than the Federal Reserve is, is where your focus should be. But but to answer the imposition on the CPI, so to speak, yeah, obviously on the headline, it wasn't great. But I want everyone who's listening to remember that the Fed doesn't care about the CPI. They care about the PCE. Mm-hmm. So what you take away from the CPI and the PPI is what it means for the PCE. And in that sense, the components of the CPI that relate to the PCE are fine. And remember, the PCE is already at about the Fed's target on a six-month annualized basis, call it 2% or so. So why yields, as I look here, are down five, six, seven, eight basis points across the curve is because as you go through the data and input it into your model, if you're an economist, you end up with a PCE that still suggests the Fed is on course, maybe not to cut in March, but certainly to begin the process of cutting sometime in, let's call it the next six months. And ultimately, that's driving the rate market and by extension, what's happening in the stock market. So I say this all the time. I'm not smart enough nor humorless enough to be an economist, but at what point does that dispersion between PCE and CPI, when do they sort of rectify and get into line? Or are we in line historically? I guess my question embedded in that is, can CPI change course and start to move higher the way it appears to be doing? Well, and PCA being tame, or do they have to sort of align at some point? I mean, listen, the Fed prefers PCE for a couple of reasons that we won't bore the listeners with. It, it deals better. Well, I guess I'm about to bore the listeners with it, but it, it deals better with substitutions, the weight. The CPI is a fixed basket. If the consumer spends healthcare expenditures, that counts in the CPI. But if other people spend money on healthcare, it doesn't. That does in the PCE. So the answer to your question as I ramble through that introduction is you don't really care. Mm-hmm. If you're a market participant, if you're Guy and Dan and Danny Moses and, and many listeners who are trading on a daily, weekly basis, even for long-term investors. Okay, okay, fair enough. And I understand that you don't care, but you know who does care? I think the people that drive this economy and the people that drive the economy are the 73% agree with of the people that are buying things. And that's what this economy is driven by. So if credit is more difficult to attain, if interest rate credit rate is now north of 21%, for I think on aggregate for the first time ever, if the unemployment rate starts ticking higher, the PCE might be fine, but people on the ground might be like, I don't know what you guys are looking at. I feel like shit right now. And if that hurts spending, by definition, that should really hurt the economy. Am I grasping at straws here? No, I I think you're exactly right. At the end of the day, for most people, they don't care about the CPI or the PC. Mm -hmm. They care about how much are milk and eggs, how much is the price of gasoline. And that ultimately determines a lot of what's going on with how they feel. And you can see this in the consumer sentiment number. There are any number of debates and and discussions and papers being written about why consumers feel so poorly, Mm -hmm. despite a very low unemployment rate and a number of other positive things. And I think the answer is just general price level in the economy is 20% higher today than That's it right. was pre-COVID. And so if you are a middle-class American and you have auto insurance or childcare, or you just want to make an omelet for breakfast, you're quote unquote struggling. What I will say is I will bring up a quote from Brian Moynihan, the CEO of Bank of America, of course, who was speaking at, I believe, a Bloomberg conference. Mm-hmm. And he, he has made this point on a couple of their conference calls, but he reiterated it with updated data a week or two or three ago at this Bloomberg conference where he said that that the cohort of consumers, the lowest deposit banked consumers at Bank of America, which obviously is an enormous retail facing bank, that pre-COVID had something like $2,000 to $5,000 in their bank account, today has about Mm $13,000. So call it more than double, sits in the, now, and, and that's important, A, because while I feel terrible as consumers, you still, based on this anecdote from Bank of America, have the financial wherewithal to bear some of this. But it's also a reminder that whenever you hear this conversation about excess savings, 
everyone is making it up because these excess savings were expected to run out a year ago, nine months ago, six months ago, today. And yet here comes Bank of America riding to the rescue, giving you real world data, not anecdote, not implied data, real world data that people are sitting with about $13,000 in their checking account. And that all else equal is going to be positive for consumer stocks mm -hmm. and for the economy. Dan, one of the big signals in the market has been the yield curve inversion or should have been a predictor of a recession or bad things to come. It obviously has not happened. We've been inverted for some time. I will note that the last two times that we've kind of steepened was in March, right after Civ B, when the 10 year went to 4%. And then we were concerned about the ability to fund ourselves in October when we went to 5%. Both those times we were steepening, obviously, right? Because the 10 year yield was rising. We're doing the same thing right now, except the 10 year yield really isn't rising that much, but the two year yield is falling. I'm wondering now if we actually get to a flat or even a steep curve, obviously we're gonna talk about the banks in a second, what that means since the inversion curve necessarily may still portend a recession, but didn't mean anything. What's your takeaway on that? And what are your thoughts on the yield curve in general? So let me ramble and give you two answers. The first on the yield curve in the banks, and then the second on the economy. Just very quickly on the banks, and I, Solus is not a particularly large financial investor. I'm not some expert on the banks as an investment, but banks borrow short, lend long. We know that. They do not do it at the two-year, 10-year portion of the curve. They do it much, much shorter. But that said, as the curve uninverts, and this is to state the obvious, as the curve uninverts and eventually probably moves into positive territory, that all else equals probably positive for the banks. And you see this in the performance of the KRE and the BKX, et cetera, et cetera. And you made an important point on, on a recent podcast, Dan Nathan, that the XLF really isn't something you can look at anymore right. as a, mm -hmm. a barometer, certainly of the banks, but as the financials, given not just the weighting of, of Berkshire Hathaway, but also now the inclusion of Visa and MasterCard in, in financials more generally. But so for the banks, this is a very simple setup. I'm not advocating the trade from a fundamental standpoint, but Historically, you would think a steeper curve absent a recession is going to be positive for the banks. And again, I think you see that in the performance already. Very quickly, just on the yield curve and the recession side of things, I mentioned earlier I was bearish in 22, and a lot of that had to do with something like the yield curve. You mentioned credit conditions uh, as it relates to credit card interest rates. These are some of the main inputs economists and strategists would put into a forecasting model and say, I should be bullish, I right. should be bearish, because these things are happening. And the yield curve is the most predictable, reliable indicator of recessionary conditions. And so to some degree, the answer to this question is this time is different. And what I, what I, yes, I know. But what I mean by that is the, the curve is starting to uninvert, which historically is the negative. The, the inversion is your warning sign. Right. The uninversion is get out of the way. But if all these other indicators like lending standards, the bank lending standards, like the yield curve, if they uninvert without broader economic damage, then this time really is different. It was a COVID-induced X, Y, and Z, and we're going to go on about our day without any damage thereafter. But, but let me be clear. It will, in fact, be different because historically, the longer duration of the inversion, and if we make it to February and continue to be inverted, I think, I've said this a number of times, that will be the longest duration since they've been looking at these things. And again, the longer duration, typically, historically, the more severe the downturn. So- by definition, it absolutely has to be different this time. Well, well, yes. I mean, I, I would push back. I've heard, I've heard you say that on other podcasts. I don't think you're wrong. I mean, the data is the data. I just don't know that we have enough mm -hmm. data sets. There's Fair not enough. enough N in the data set to say mm -hmm. this usually happens. I mean, we're talking about five inversions, basically, and what normally happens. The better conversation, and I don't mean to shut down this one, is whether the yield curve is simply predictive of a recession, so to speak, or contributing. 
Right. Is there something about the inverting yield curve that disincentivizes lending in the banking sector? That's like a whole great conversation to have. But about is this different this time? This goes back to something I, I've said internally when it came to the monthly jobs number. And the consensus would be 200,000 and the actual number would be 500,000. Like literally nobody knows what's going on right now. And I think that COVID hangover still persists in the sense that you look at the yield curve and you look relative to history. We look at lending standards relative to history. We look at the performance of cyclicals versus defensives in given environments relative to history. I'm not positive that that is entirely appropriate. I think COVID may have screwed up a lot of things right now. And I think the yield curve might for now be one of them. All right, let's talk about sentiment as it relates to stock market here. So heading into 2023, it couldn't have been worse. We obviously had a bear market in 2022 that crescendoed into late October. And then we had a big rally off of that. And we started out this year where most investors were kind of offsides. Most investors who think they understand the economy thought we were going to be in a recession at some point in 2023. It never happened. We did have an earnings well, we recession. Well, we had though. an earnings recession. Yeah. Then we had a, a mini yeah. housing ran into trouble, manufacturing. Yeah. So something, Rolling, yeah. something did happen. You're right. Listen, stock market, despite plenty of headwinds, still geopolitical, still high inflation on a relative basis or cumulative sort of basis, a whole host of things happened in 2023, but the stock market basically got back towards at least the S&P 500 to its prior all-time highs. Now, here we are after basically two full weeks in 2024, it's been a little volatile. It's been low volume. There's been some rotationary stuff or whatever. But if I'm looking at my screens right now, I still see most of the MAG7, I think Danny like called MAG6 and Tesla, which is clearly out of it, down 15% just in the last couple of weeks and down firmly on the year. Those names are up again, right? Like So as much noise as we made last week of a bunch of these names being down. Apple's the only one, and, and that might be the real test of fundamentals for some of these sure. Mag 7 ones. So I'm curious, if sentiment is overwhelmingly bullish this year, it was overwhelmingly bearish coming into last year, how do you think this plays out? Because as far as I'm concerned, there's a couple things out there that we know are lurking on the geopolitical. We know that it's a, an election year, and like, but there's got to be something out there, and none of us are going to be able to put our finger on it, that's going to cause some sort of... Sure. Like, well, but the pushback to that is there's always something out of course. there. Of course. There's the Thai bot. There's the tequila yep. crisis. There's COVID. There's always a black swan you can't prepare for or know about. And it's why you get very famous, very profitable, legendary investors mm -hmm. like David Einhorn, mm -hmm. who would say, this is why I don't pay attention to the macro. I look at the fundamentals and I put my head down and that's all that mattered. Please. So let's look at the fundamentals. Okay. So right now we're going to have S&P earnings as of, you know, when we're done with Q4 earnings season that are going to be up, you know, less than 1% or so. So right, for the year, for 2023. Yep. Okay. So 2024 now we're, we're seeing consensus that is up 11%. So forget the black swan stuff, forget the, you know what I mean? Like so, some of the big spooky stuff that's out there. Again, what is the thing that causes the earnings expectations to be ratcheted down to mid to low single digits for 2024 at some point in the first half of this year? And if that were the case, then you will see the stock market sell off in kind. Um, well, yes. Yeah, so you let's agree. Well, it's not that I disagree, but let's let's take this. Let me. Let, the first thing I want to say for listeners is Liz is on the show all the time. Mm -hmm. You've had on Savita, mm -hmm. and we mentioned Tony Dwyer off air. I mean, I bring that up because if you're a Wall Street strategist, which I used to be and, and am now just for, for the single manager for whom I work, you come into the year with a view that the S&P will do X or small caps will do Y or high yield will do Z. That is your rough 
estimate. Mm -hmm. But along the way, you are tactically moving about that target. Mm -hmm. The idea that if I enter the year bullish, I can't become bearish. I know this is sort of an anathema. It looks like you're flipping on your view, but the best thing you can do as an investor is be nimble. Mm -hmm. is, as the facts change, I change, et cetera, et cetera. And so if someone's bullish in January and something changes, that's perfectly fine. And to get back to the point about me sort of, I entered 23 bearish, but by February or March was feeling a little, like that's what you're supposed to mm -hmm. do. And I think when I watch CNBC, which we're all on and other, and I read things, I think there's this view that, well, if I capitulate, so to speak, right. I look weak or something. Mm -hmm. And that's not at all appropriate. But I just wanted, I wanted to get that out. No, but I th that you make an excellent point because I think you're mm -hmm. right on. You know, you get labeled certain things. Sure. And I will say without exception, I want to say in 2022, and we've talked about this, Dan, there were two times specifically that I turned bullish. One time was in June when the VIX spiked about 34 and a half and sentiment got just ridiculously bearish. We thought there could be a 15, 16% rally. We saw that. And the exact same thing happened in October. So you had those two events in 2022, which made sense to me. Why 2023 was difficult for me now into 24 is so many of the things that I were concerned about then, they all sort of came to fruition, but none of them were impactful to the market. But your point about changing course along the way, and somehow that's you know, viewed as weakness or something. I understand exactly what you're saying, but you also want to be careful not to be the person that's bullish on the days the market's higher because you've seen enough of those people to oh, make yeah. you crazy as well. Sure. So I, I'm going to come back to the earnings and the growth thing in a second because it's really important. And I know you talked about it on a recent podcast, but I do, to your point, want to emphasize the importance of interest rates. Again, what happened in November and December and to the weakness we're having earlier this year. I think when you look at November, December cumulatively for the S&P uh, market cap weighted, I think it was the best two months going back like 20 or 30 years, something like that. I have to rerun the data, but something to that effect. I was reminded of a 1970s cartoon. It's a, a guy. Doonesbury? It was not Doonesbury, but it was a guy sitting in a chair and he's watching TV and it's a news report. And the newscaster in the blurb uh, says, uh, the stock market sold off today on news that a meteor was cratering right, towards right. the earth to destroy it, but rallied in the afternoon when the Fed reduced the discount rate. That's exactly right. That is, I, I can't, that is always- I stuck. wish I saw that because that's brilliant. I have it and I'll send it to you later. It has stuck with me forever and it goes back to one of the, the guys I used to study under who, like at the end of the day, rates, 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 rates. You're not bullish, you're not bearish, you're not a sucker. If you just look at the rates market and say stocks go up on balance when rates go down, although that relationship is more complicated I want than I just made in, it. But quickly, I'll tell you, you know, the meteor was in the form of Silicon Valley Bank. Sure. A hundred percent. Yeah. We're all collectively watching this meteor, then First Republic, and then the other meteor shower, and you're like, holy shit. And then to your point, you're burying the lead because yes. here comes Treasury, here comes the Fed to the rescue. So before Danny jumps in, I just want to get to Dan Nathan's point before about, mm -hmm. about EPS expectations next year. So uh, so as we mentioned, we're let's round and call it 220 bucks this year. 10% mm -hmm. EPS growth will get you to 240 bucks mm -hmm. next year or something. The way you think about as a strategist, the market is not next year, but two years forward. Mm -hmm. Where am I going to end next year relative to 2025? So if you put another 10% on top of that, and we, we can just leave that alone for a second. That gets you to 260 and change or whatever. Again, I, I was with Wapner the other day and I, I made this point and this argument is the most bullish. But if you end at 20 times that, that's 50, like 5,300 50, yeah. or 5,350. Yeah. Now, again, there are a lot of ifs in there. But to get to the point about EPS being too high, EPS is always too high, but not by that much. Historically, it's 2, 3% too high. So I think your boy Butters 
has consensus love at Butters. Do you love Butters, by the way? I don't know him at all, oh, but right. I know he that he loves it, his work. Right. Uh, the Earnings Insight blog. Well, his work transcends yes, the person. I want to be part of the team yeah. here and plug oh, the guy you guys like. I want to get invited back. We love Butters. I'm being nice here. This is a tip for younger people. Know who you're talking to and hit the high notes. Historically, it is not unusual for earnings to end the year a couple of percentage points below where we thought they were to start the year, and yet the stock market go up the whole time. It is not an ironclad rule that as earnings come down, the market must. Now, again, we're not always starting at 20 times forward EPS, so there's less room for that, but it is not an ironclad rule. So we've been doing this three plus years, and Guy just got stumped on something from the 1970s. Never, ever has he not known something that was going to be talked about. So that's the first. (laughs) Second thing is, forget about the earnings in the S&P, I want to talk about sectors for a second because people say we're bearish. Well, we're bullish on certain sectors. And I think Guy and I, at least, and I think Dan to a degree, we're bullish on energy in the sense of it's little being ignored. It's been thrown by the wayside. It's not sexy. It's not exciting. Yet all this M&A is happening. Whether they get approved, these deals get approved or not, I don't know. But a group that definitely disappointed on the earnings front in 2023 as a small component of the S&P could have kind of a breakout. So we're talking about energy, looking at staples, looking at healthcare. And yeah, they're not sexy, high beta necessarily, but it seems like a safe place to be within the S&P, Dan. I'd love to get your thoughts on those. So I don't want to be too specific because we do play Mm -hmm. in the energy space, but just as a backdrop for listeners, the first thing you need to know about energy, of course, is that a lot of it has to do with the oil price. And there was a lot of concern about demand, a la the recession in 2023. That proved to be inaccurate. Global oil demand was up call it about 2 million barrels, mm-hmm. maybe a touch more, a touch less. Went to pre-COVID levels. Sure. Yeah, w- which is remarkable if you think about it. Anyway, listen, global travel is a big jet fuel. That sort of stuff is a big driver of oil demand and oil price. This year, you will probably not get 2 million barrels of oil demand increase. You'll probably get something like one or one and a half. But the big issue for oil entering the year on the negative side of things is supply. I know the Biden administration doesn't want to talk about this, but U.S. oil production is 13 plus million barrels. It's enormous. It's a record high. We're exporting the most amount of oil ever. And obviously there's some you know, light, sweet and heavy mm-hmm. crude and, and that sort of stuff explains some of the flows, but we're producing a ton of oil. And the important point is that the 2014 scare for a lot of these energy companies remains in place today. 100%. They are buying back stock, they are returning cash. And so while historically it's been largely about oil and the price of oil, these companies as a group have gone from calling it spending at 140% a free cash flow to now spending only about 30 or 40% of free cash flow, the balance of which is buying back stock, reducing debt, et cetera, et cetera. And those are incredibly shareholder-friendly actions that uh, from from the top all the way down, market cap size, are likely to benefit you as an investor. And, and it's also important to remember that at the top, Exxon and Chevron are 40% of like the XLE, let's say. So when you look at the XLE, and it's the same thing with the XLK, we know this, and one or two other sectors as well, discretionary is, is enormous for Tesla and, and uh, Amazon. But when you look at the XLE, it doesn't always tell you what's going on beneath the the headline. There are other names that are doing well, whether it's the refiners or the offshore drillers. Jackup rates for offshore drilling is very high. What I was going to say is, I'm so happy you brought that up because we talk about this. All the points you just made far more eloquently than I have is, you know, it's sort of, it's galvanizing my idea. Three of the best things that have happened to this energy sector over the last, I don't know, decade or so. I've said this, I think number one is ESG. It's somewhat counterintuitive, but it forced these companies to take a hard look at themselves and operate better. I think the second one was that negative $39 front month crude print in April of a few years ago, which scared the shit out of everybody. And then this is going to sound nuts, but again, counterintuitive. I think the Biden administration was probably the best thing that happened. So those three things together, 
have forced them to be better operators. Their balance sheets have probably never been in better shape. These were lazy companies for years because they could be. They are no longer. Valuations, though, especially in an environment where people are seemingly paying up willy-nilly for certain things, are extraordinarily compelling. The problem I have is, and I'll give you an anecdotal incident here, historically, when Warren Buffett announces a stake in a company, and I've sat on the desk of Fast Money long enough, the knee-jerk reaction is that stock is up and lower left, upper right for the foreseeable future. He is now up to a 37% stake in Oxy, O-X-Y. And you can look at a stock. Stock's going nowhere now for the last year and a half. I'm not sure, and I'm not going to play stock market here, Dan, but I'm not sure what investors, traders, whatever, are just not look. I see something that clearly the investing public does not. Thoughts on that? I I'm reminded as you bring this up of, I forget, but was it 2010 when he took a stake in one of the rails? And it, yes. And he's been wrong before as well. Exxon, he was wrong on 10 so, years ago. Well, yeah. I mean, listen, this is the important difference between batting average and slugging percentage. Right. There's an important lesson for investors, especially younger ones listening. You're not going to be right on everything. Mm -hmm. When you are wrong, cut your losses. We're off on another tangent here. But when you're wrong, cut your losses. When you're right, let your winners Lever run. that shit up. Yeah. And that's know, to your point about slugging percentage. That, that's right. That's it's, exactly it's a right. version of the Soros trade. Mm -hmm. You know, or or even Buffett, who who is sort of anti diversification on the idea, and Bruce Berkowitz used to do this also. Why should I put more money into my sixth best idea when I can put more money into my fifth best idea? We're completely not answering your question. I don't have a view on Oxy specifically, but about energy, not many sectors trade as cheaply as it does. Mm -hmm. Again, this is separate from what Solus does, but not many sectors trade as cheaply as it does. If demand holds up and the oil price hangs in here in the call it seventy dollar range, seventy five dollar range, I, I I think the sector again as an idea. Is something you want to look so, at. But you're saying that demand is holding up. We saw, you know, the this increase in demand in 2023, yet now it's turning into a supply thing. Is that why we have crude at 70 bucks and can't get out of its own way? Because three months ago it was trading at $95. It looked like, you know, like everyone was kind of putting these $150 price targets on it based on sure. a whole host of things. And, you know, the one thing that I think is really interesting also to go back to this period in 2022 is when tanks started rolling into Ukraine, that's when the price of crude started going to materially higher. We thought that we were on the other side of all these supply chain disruptions, right, post-COVID. And then the crude oil and the nat gas move really sent inflation expectations, right, through the roof in a way. And that was something that we saw recede fairly quickly. And now we have crude oil where we are on the cusp of possibly a very broad war in the Middle East, and this thing can't get out of its own way. So what is it? Is it supply or demand? Well, the, the issue, the demand has held up. The issue on the supply side is the U.S. keeps producing more, which is forcing OPEC, mm -hmm. particularly the Saudis, to curtail production. Mm -hmm. And the risk for any energy investor, this is risk 101, is what happens if the Saudis just say, okay, enough is enough, and, mm -hmm. and start producing again. That's that's well, that's something it's interesting you mentioned that. I mean, the other side of OPEC sort of galvanized together and the Saudis saying, you know what, if you don't want to play, we're just going to flood the, the world with oil. They did it before. They've done it before. And I think that is a part of the bear thesis, by the way, in terms of the commodity specifically, which I don't think enough people are looking at. I'm glad you brought it up. And by the way, if that were to happen, I don't want to use the word devastating. It's a bit hyperbolic, but for lack of a better word, devastating for a lot of these Permian and a lot of these oh, sure. US players. I, I, which, would be the, which would be the point. You mentioned the oil going negative, et cetera. They tried to do it before, and, and U.S. Permian and shale producers ended up proving to be far more resilient than anybody expected. 
But the flip side of this conversation is what this means for gasoline prices and the U.S. consumer. And there's all this talk about, obviously, the consumer's weak or weakening. The ICR conference is going on right now, and there's some talk from some of the people down there that they're seeing some weakness. But gas prices are $3.08 a gallon mm -hmm. nationally. That is a, a humongous tailwind for consumption and consumer sentiment. And in the course of this conversation, we shouldn't look on the other side of this and say, okay, yeah, but consumers are getting the equivalent of a tax cut here to the extent that the labor market doesn't weaken or something else doesn't happen. That's tremendously beneficial for, for the economy and for the stock market. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one -on -one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Well, Dan, one of the other things that U.S consumers have access to now is being able to buy Bitcoin through ETFs, which was a anticipated approval, which happened yesterday after a hacked Twitter account or whatever they want to say at the ICC. That's a whole nother podcast that we can do on that. But I have my thoughts here and I'll just give you them real quick. I think it's great that people have access to express this trade. It's why Coinbase is down because people don't need to go there to do it any longer. They'll just be custodian maybe for some of these assets. But I know who the winners are, Dan, and the, win the winners of this are the quant funds, and the HFT funds, it's going to be a bonanza. Those are the big winners. You talk about this whole mismatch of pricing, the way that these quants are built. There's nothing illegal about it. When you have an ETF in general, like the S&P 500, what do they do? They see the price, they see all the underlyings and the 0.001 cent difference. They go in and take advantage of. I can only imagine the advantage that you're going to have now by trading Bitcoin for some of these funds, looking at these ETFs and making those things more efficient in general. So I'm not sure how this is all going to end. I can't imagine this goes smoothly, but we'd love to get your thoughts in general on that. I don't want to comment on Bitcoin itself. My own personal view is I, I, I've always sort of been a little skeptical of the coin itself and, and the need for a digital currency. And I don't think pro-Bitcoin people properly account for the fact that the Federal Reserve and the government, let alone governments around the world, are coming for you in the form of central bank mm -hmm. digital currencies, CBDCs. So that's an ever-present risk, a la the Saudi risk that we just talked about with respect to oil. But I also think, listen, you could have traded Bitcoin futures in an ETF not that long ago, I believe. Obviously, trading spot is better, and that'll increase access and more access is better than than less access. So I think in that sense, I'm I'm pro freedom. And this is, uh, I would put that in line. I would also add for listeners, you don't have to own Bitcoin itself. There's also, you mentioned coin, but there's like ancillary businesses around Bitcoin 
that are obviously going to be somewhat derivative of the price of Bitcoin, but also afford you an ability to invest in the infrastructure around Bitcoin and blockchain, et cetera, that might be a little less risky, for lack of a better word, if you're not comfortable with the outright risk of the coin itself. I want to play a little stock market here real quick because I can. Look at Coinbase today, Thursday, we're taping this. Um, the knee-jerk reaction, Dan Nathan, was to take the stock back to about $161, only to see it fall right around 140 traded probably two and a half, three times normal volume on the day. Now, I mentioned that because Coinbase was a stock that was left for dead a year or so ago. It was a $35 stock, rallied up to about 185 which matched the level that we saw in March of 2022, right before it cratered. I said on Fast Money earlier this week that you can make a negative case for Coinbase on the back of the ETFs. I think for the reasons that Dan just talked about now and for a myriad of others. So there's an entry point in Coinbase, uh, but I don't think it's at 140 bucks, Dan. Yeah, and no, if you think about it, I mean, here's a company that had explosive growth during the whole meme stock sort of thing in, in, the, in the back half of 2020 into 2021, and they've seen their revenues decline fairly substantially from the heights of those times. Expected to grow 20%, maybe get the gap positive EPS next year. You see what sort of leverage they have. But the biggest, I think, pillar of the bear case for coin was that a spot Bitcoin ETF that anybody can own in their IRA, at Fidelity, at Schwab, at anywhere. It really is going to take the normies who are interested in having that exposure, and they're just not going to be interested in going and crossing bid ask and paying high commissions and having a crypto wallet with Coinbase. So I don't get if every model like this that we've seen in our lifetimes, and I came into the markets, Dan, you probably did too, in the late 90s, the biggest thing then were these online brokers, right? Sure. Like, so now they're about as normal as can be. There's no commissions anywhere. You know what I mean? All, all like, so I just don't see the bull case for this. And, and I also say to myself, this is going to add so much competition because Coinbase has done a nice job. They really tried to dictate some sort of regulatory structure that should exist, that they want to build their business in and around. And I think they play pretty well with regulators. They've been very frustrated at times with their inability for regulators to get in front of all this, right? So now that you have some of the biggest players in the financial markets, BlackRock and Fidelity, and the list goes on and on behind this trillion dollar asset class, and that's just the Bitcoin part of it, I think probably Coinbase gets somewhat crowded out a little bit. This is just my two cents. If Coinbase was making, let's say, two and a half percent commission on trades, and now these ETFs are basically offering an incentive, most of them for free, if not 12 basis points, maybe 25 basis points points to get these their exposure that they want. Yes, Coinbase will still act as custodian to these assets, but the fees are dramatically less, right? That's one. And two, I feel safer having BlackRock as the name brand on an ETF that mm -hmm. I'm involved in just because they're a trillion dollar asset company and it just makes me feel, quote, safer. I think there's going to be a massive shift. I don't know what that does to the price of crypto here, but you know, to me, there's a structural change here. And I have a feeling there's going to be some hiccups. I'm not making a call either way in this process and settling and all this stuff, but you know, remains to be seen here. Our fine sponsor of this podcast, CME Group, they listed a future on Bitcoin. This was back in 2017. I think it was December. At the time, Bitcoin had just touched 20,000. It was then an all-time high. And you know, this has been an asset class that they've been focused on now for, for a while. While, I would expect that if these Bitcoin ETFs catch some steam, and I think they will, if you think about the way macro traders use sector ETFs, index ETFs, right? 
you're going to see futures increase volume dramatically. You're going to see options listed on all these sorts of things. So I actually think this could be a boon for a lot of these exchanges like a CME. That might be a really interesting way to play it. I think you're going to see the Bitcoin ETF is going to top the volumes on the NASDAQ and the NYSE exchanges on many days because it's really become a macro asset that you can think about in the same way you think about gold and how interest rates and how the US dollar impacted. So to me, I actually think a way to play this is probably looking at some of those other exchanges that will not be listing Bitcoin ETFs, but will have futures in ways to speculate on the price or hedge it out. Dan Greenhouse, do you like to, you're a traveling guy. My sense is you do a lot of travel. I've been traveling. You've been traveling? I've been on planes. Have you been? The That's windows good. have never blown out, but but, but I've, I've, I've been on planes. Thank, thank God. God. By the way, that I mean, we won't even get into Boeing and Spirit, but think, I mean, that's just insane. With that said, I travel. Dan, Nate, you travel. Dan. A little bit. I know Danny Moses. Tra- I mention this because when you're traveling as a family, a lot of times you like to rent a car. And when you're on a trip, a family vacation or something, you only have so much time. You don't want to waste your time plugging that shit in, the electric car in and waiting. Not something you- you're doing in the no. Tommy household. And I only mention that, Danny Moses, because we just saw a headline from Hertz. And guess what? They're selling 20,000s of their EV-powered vehicles. Now, by the way, I'm sure there were a lot of great intentions a few years ago when they were going to order 100,000 Teslas and 25,000 Polestars and all those different things. But I think what they found is maybe the demand's not there, number one, and the costs associated with those vehicles were really hurting their margins, number two. And I don't think it's coincidence, Danny Moses, that as we're sitting here today on Thursday, Tesla is breaking down through a pretty critical support level. And I'm teeing you up not necessarily to go down the Tesla rabbit hole, but these things are all part and parcel, Demo. Yeah, this isn't necessarily about Tesla specifically, although obviously anytime it's down, I'd love to talk about it. That being said, I think that we go back to 2021. And by the way, I will tell you, Tom Brady had two big endorsements, Hertz Electric Vehicles of Tesla and FTX in mm. the last two to three years. So mm-hmm. we'll talk about that. Let's go. It's, I mean, I would still want to be him, but those aren't two, two great things. But just in general, all the euphoria surrounding it, and you're right, the practicality of it, but also damages to it, how expensive it is to maintain, how expensive it is to repair, all the things that the consumers of electric vehicles, specifically Teslas, are kind of you know experiencing. It's interesting, though, we had thought that once you buy a Tesla, it goes up in value. Notice the right down that they're taking when they sell these vehicles, Guy, also. But I think more importantly, when you see like a GM that made this announcement, you know, late last year about, hey, we're going to pull back from EV. When you see the whole cruise news, see, we're going back and die. I mean, Hertz specifically said we're focusing on ICE vehicles. Again, back to kind of the oil comment that we just kind of made. So in general, I think that we're seeing the euphoria of electric vehicles in or just aren't as practical. We're not built yet from an infrastructure perspective to handle all that. And so to your point, Guy, they're not convenient to use. Now, I want to bring up one other thing now that you brought this, because this will go back to Greenhouse, and I'll be able to comment on this, because I think it's an important part of thesis for 2024, are unions and wages for employees that are gaining steam. Whether you're unionized or not, two companies I've been looking at, one is Starbucks, Dan, Greenhouse, obviously, and that stock has done nothing but go straight down since Red Cup Day a couple months ago, and there's unions now being formed all over the place, or they're fighting. Same thing in Tesla's happening now. So not to make it specific to Tesla or Starbucks, I think they both have issues. I think the labor movement is a big issue for margins in 2024. Forget about wage inflation. I'm talking about to the corporate margins about what we're seeing. So about the charging stuff and the EVs, I'll say I don't have any doubt. I could be wrong, but I don't have any doubt that 30 years from now, EVs will be the majority of cars probably on the road, but certainly sold. Mm -hmm. And there's obviously a lag between the two data sets. To your point, the enthusiasm that got built up around EVs in the last couple of years 
from the particularly the US and Europe sort of mandating that ICE vehicles have to be done for by 2030, 2035, always seemed incredibly ambitious. And the flip side of the word ambitious is unlikely. So I think what you're seeing now is the fallout from just the overenthusiasm and investment that was put in place. I don't think the demand for EVs is not there per se, it just may not be there yet. And part of that is the charging infrastructure. I don't think it's all that, but part of it is the charging infrastructure. And I think this is part of the reason why in general you want the private sector to do something and not the government to mandate it, because this is going to take longer than the government wants, longer than the government anticipated, but that doesn't mean that it's bad or wrong or not happening. So again, I think 20 or 30 years from now, EVs will probably make up the majority of cars that are sold, maybe the majority of cars on the road, who knows, but I wouldn't read what's happening now as it being the death of EVs. Again, I could be wrong. That's my thought on that. It's worth talking about it right now because you have Tesla that has a $725 billion market cap, which is down from $1.2 trillion three years ago. And so all of those hopes and dreams about the EV markets and the most aggressive assumptions about adoption are built into that market cap, right? And then if you throw in robots and you throw in full self-driving and and they're charging infrastructure, fleets and the the charging infrastructure, that's how the bulls get there. And I think to Danny's point, and we've been talking about this all year long, I mean, here's a company, Tesla, that's going to do $100 billion in revenue this year. But last year, their gross margin was 25.5%. This year, it's expected to be 18.5%. And that looks an awful lot like GM 17%. And they push back their ambition for EVs. They're not able to be profitable about it. So this is going to be a really interesting year, in my opinion, because we saw earnings decline 25% from 2022 to 2023. And I think Tesla learned something about econ, Dan Greenhouse, is the whole idea that if you keep lowering prices, sooner or later, you would expect demand to pick up. And that didn't happen. And I think what they're also learning is that there is a saturation point, at least in developed markets like ours and Europe, and they haven't really achieved what they need to do with the charging infrastructure, right? And so to me, I actually think 2024 could be a really messy year for them, guy, mm-hmm. because if you don't see incremental demand because of the lower prices, and I got to tell you, for their average price point, let's call it at 45, 50 grand or something like that, when have you guys ever seen a consumer company change prices up and down the way they have or whatever? So, so consumers don't even know what to do with this sort of thing. So I hope they learned a whole heck of a lot. And the last point about this with BYD outselling them in Q4, they made a huge critical error by going all in on autonomous equipment couple years ago and not focused on this $25,000 price point because that was where they were going to get all of their growth for the most part from China at a time where the US and Europe is kind of saturated. The bull case for Tesla was two quarters ago when a lot of people thought that was going to be the trough margin quarter. And I think they got down to 17 and a quarter percent or so. But to your point, you lower prices, hoping that you're going to get the commensurate demand, if not more so. And they're just not really seeing it. So at a certain point, that's going to start to hurt margins. And it was this time a year and a half or so ago when Tesla told us when their margins were probably 22% that you're going to start to see margins decrease, but then we're not get down to legacy auto levels, which are about 16%. But right before our eyes, that's what's happening. Now, I'm not suggesting you should trade at the same multiple four to GM. That's not my point. But at a certain point, you have to start taking into consideration their margins have been contracting. Yeah, I, very quickly, just one thing that does work for them, and, and I, to be clear, again, I'm making no comment about Tesla fundamentally. It, it has become clear as other companies have entered the space and there's plenty of EVs to choose from, people still want 100%. A, a Tesla. 
or they, they don't want an EV well, some per of these se. Cars, I mean, like that Rivian thing is pretty cool, I guess, but not yeah. that I, I'm there's not a buying There's a couple of Rivians in my neighborhood, and they are very cool. The, the only reason why we keep talking about this is that if you look at GM and Ford combined, they're expected to do, again, $300 billion in sales. This is trailing, okay, with like a 16% gross margin. And my only point is, and they have a combined market capitalization of less than $100 billion. So Tesla has a $725 billion market cap, $100 billion in sales with margins that are not that far from those two companies. So there is about a $600 billion gap, right, between a pure play EV maker that's got a lot of other things built into it and all the other automakers. And so this goes back to your point about expectations when we are going to see the majority of cars on the road or sold or whatever that gap is. EVs, I'm taking the over on it, okay? Like, you know what I mean? And that's the point. Danny, is there a spread trade between traditional automakers and, and, and an EV company that, that kind of uh, catches your attention every once yeah, in a while? Yeah, just to put a bow on this, when the stock starts to move Tesla on normal fundamental things like paying their employees higher wages, which everyone knows is a hit to their margin, it tells you it starts to look more like an auto company and I think the benefit of the doubt of what they're going to have in the future, you know, whether it's it's full self-driving and they can't even really charge for that anymore, whatever it might be, what other products that they're going to be bringing out, they've disappointed. And I think to Dan's point, the investors are starting to lose patience. So yes, those two could morph over time. I think there'll always be a premium on Tesla barring somebody finds something much bigger than that that's going on structurally at the company. But Dan Greenhouse, to the point of just labor in general, what you're seeing as far as trends, because to me, it's not about inflation, labor inflation, separate that from just cost the companies are going to have to start paying their employees more. So, so this is a good conversation. And, and let's see if we can do it as quickly as possible here so we don't put, put everyone to sleep. So my view from several years ago was that when we came out on the other side of whatever 22 or 23 mm -hmm. would be, that inflation and interest rates would be higher than we'd experienced in the post-GFC called the 2010 through 2019 period. And I think now that's becoming obviously more likely than not, if not definite. To say it another way, that we're going to look back in 20 years as 2010 through 2019 or so as the aberration rather than the norm, and now we're entering something of a normalized rate and interest rate period. Part of that is the hangover from the amount of money that we have spent, both from 2010 through 2019 and as a response to COVID, but also some of the lingering effects of COVID, like what you mentioned with respect to what we call the unionization rate. That said, the private sector unionization rate is, call it 10%, 9% or so. It used to be 33%. Obviously, it's much stronger in the government, but it is relatively low. And so I would be hesitant to make some larger proclamation that because the Starbucks in Buffalo managed to unionize or they're trying to unionize a warehouse in Wichita or whatever it might be, and that's not to diminish or degrade those efforts, I don't know that I would make a larger point just from that. At the same time, it is undeniable if you look at, for instance, the Atlanta Fed wage tracker, which is now everybody's go-to for what's going on with wages, it's undeniable that there is still upward pressure on wages mm -hmm. akin to the upward pressure that we see on inflation in this morning's report. And that is a larger theme that I think is going to be with us for a while. That does not mean that the 10-year has to go to 6% or 7% or 10% or something like that. It does mean that there's more of a headwind to rates coming back down, so to speak, to 2 or 3%. The conversation thereafter is, what does that mean for the economy, valuations, and in a really fun conversation, interest expense for the U.S. government? All right, here we go. You ready? Mm -hmm. Dan Nathan asked a question about an arbitrage or something. How'd you formulate it to Spread Danny? trade? Spread trade. Yeah. Remember the movie, 48 Hours, there's a new sheriff in town, yeah. and his name is Reggie, Reggie Hammond. Hammond. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Love that movie, by the way. 
That scene in in the bar, I mean, in Torchies. Nick Nolte. Oh, my God. Anyway, there is a new sheriff in town. Nobody's talking about this sheriff, but it's been the sheriff for a while in the form of an automaker, $313 billion market cap, which made a 52-week high today, and it was in a whisper of its all-time high that nobody ever mentions on the network. That would be Toyota Motors, number one. Now, we didn't rehearse this, Danny, and I'm hoping you get it right. If you were to pick up one word, just pick out one word, close your eyes for a second so I can sort of zen it into your head. The problem with 08, 09 in terms of the banks in one word, what would that word be? Please get it right. Subprime mortgages. Okay. You you know, you you are I think it was leverage. You really are. It was leverage. I say one word, leverage. I thought the answer was going to be Toyota. (laughs) No, I've I've segued from that. Leverage. Leverage. Thank you. You're welcome, And you said it the way that I would say it. Of course I did. So I mentioned leverage because a lot of people don't. Danny, do you know the answer to this, Danny Moses? What's the second largest pension fund in the United States of America? Calsters. Yeah, what is that short for? California, California State, State Teachers, Teachers Retirement, Retirement System. By the way, yeah. Dan Greenhouse would be an amazing teacher. Like if you walked into high school and had Dan Greenhouse with those nice tweed jackets, you'd be like, I'm pretty fired up. This is a pretty cool cat. There's very low odds that I will ever wear it. Maybe that maybe he's uh, better you know, suited for being CIO guys. Well, let's CIO of Calster. So now why we're do talking. I, okay, Give him a ring. They have an opening. <laughs> they have an opening. They also are starting to, now you're going to say to me, a lot of people say it's not a big deal, but their leverage, in other words, what they're looking to, they borrow to sort of fill in the gaps. They're going from 5% of that $318 billion or so fund, I want to say up to 10%. Now you'd be like, well, who cares? But that speaks to, I think, and that's not just going to be them. That's potentially something to look, it's not going to affect anything tomorrow or a week from now. But that's something that I'm watching very closely, Danny Moses. Yeah, I think they're going from roughly 4% to 10% leverage on a $317 billion portfolio. It's interesting. They've been selling public equities, which I think around 40% of that portfolio. They obviously have private equity. But what are they getting into more? Private credit. And why do they want the ability to up the amount that they can leverage? To quote, they use the word smooth. You know, when you smooth things out, that's mm-hmm. never a, a great sign, obviously. So. And in conjunction with their meeting today, the CIO stepped down. He's been there for 27 years. Now you have CalPERS and CalSTRS. CalPERS is the bigger one in California. That's $450 billion without a CIO at either place. So nothing to worry about here, nothing to see. But again, it's nothing that's going to blow up tomorrow. But just people should just take note that this is endemic, I think, of other things that are happening when we saw, obviously, Blackstone close the reach of redemptions. This is just that version of this, I think, magnified. And so something to pay attention to out there. And in the local municipalities, it is an issue going forward. Again, nothing you should be concerned about necessarily right now. But if you were a 25-year-old that was going to become a teacher, I'm not sure you want to do it in the state of California at the moment, considering where that might look like in 25 years. Danny, do you think there's a problem with private credit? I think there will be a problem with private credit. <laughs> okay, that's fair. I, I, I think private, private credit's probably one of those things that gets a bad rap right now. It's new, it's uncertain, it's unknown. But I think there are a lot of positives about the private credit market in general that don't get nearly the airing as compared to some of the more bearish worries. You know, it's important for people to remember that on the positive side of things, these are loans that are made by people who've done enormous due diligence, usually alone. Typical loans are done in what we call a broadly syndicated manner. The the loan market is BSL or the broadly syndicated loan market. Private credit's often done by a single manager, maybe two. They've done enormous amounts of due diligence. The docs are super tight. There are some components of this conversation that seem to get overlooked in light or in favor of the private credit's going to come for us all, a narrative that that seems to permeate the, the media. 
Agreed. A lot of people did a lot of due diligence on Theranos and his Sam Bankman Freed cat as well. Anyway, I didn't say it was perfect. That's not my point. I just said it was being done. (laughs) So this is the segment of the show, Dan, where you stick around because I don't think you're a huge fan of the National Football League, the league where they play for pay. But Danny Moses pulled a rabbit out of the. By the way, before we even get to Danny Moses, I just want to say that Dan Nathan's performance over the last couple of weeks has been nothing short of extraordinary. You just want to sort of give us. I've been timestamping it too. Two weeks ago in the NFL, I went five and zero. Last week, I went five and one, and I went two and one in the in the college football playoff over the last two weeks. Twelve and two. That's twelve and two. So not bad. You know, listen. I I mean, Danny is doing it for much bigger bucks, and and he's he's publicizing his picks here. So what what did you call that? You said that he pulled what out of he pulled a rabbit out of the hat, and that's because he spent the majority of the year at the five hundred mark. Five hundred basically means mediocre. after you you're, pay you're paying the vigorous, your book, yeah, you're, you're blessing. Your yeah. But you were three and zero last week, which got your regular season record to twenty seven and twenty four. Nothing to brag about, but you know what? In the course of things, not all that bad. We have reached the season now, the second season, the playoffs. A lot of very interesting games, weather affected games too. By the way, I might add. You have a Philadelphia Eagle team playing on a Monday night, a team that can't get out of their own way. Take it away, Danny Moses. Before I get to my NFL picks. A little public announcement here that on Monday's On the Tape episode, I'm going off the tape with Ivy Zellman, founder of Zellman and Associates. I've known her a long time. She covers housing. She's the queen of housing. And she was the Credit Suisse analyst back in the mid-2000s that literally guided us, Steve Ives and myself, Porter and Vinny, through the housing crisis. No better person to talk to right now about the sector than Ivy. So please have a listen. So I went back and listened to the end of last year. I had a great year. Two years ago, last year I struggled, but did well in the playoffs. And I was so upset with you last year because I finally bought into Daniel Jones at the end of last All year right. in the playoffs. Here we go. In my year, and I said, quote, I go back and listen to it, Daniel Jones is a meme stock. Don't ever talk about him again. That Let me just end with that. So that was the end of last year's playoff run. But let me just get into this this week. And a few times this year, I've given out what I said was a five-star pick. And I think I nailed all of those when I said this is the, my top pick of the year, whatever. There is a pick on the board this week with Kansas City at home against Miami. The point you just made about the weather guy, it's going to be negative 20 wind chill. It'll be the coldest game that Kansas City has ever played with regular temperature at zero or below zero. That's going to be great for a Miami team who used heaters in 55-degree weather this season, by the way. Kansas City had a bye week last week, effectively, and they still won, by the way, which I think is meaningful for the team's mentality. Miami got beat up by Buffalo. Their injuries are everywhere. This line almost scares me because it makes no sense, but Kansas City minus four and a half. I am taking that. That is my top of the entire year. Wow. So I've been close. I think they blow them out. The second one, and it's interesting because Tyreek Hill's going back to Kansas City. Another intriguing one is Green Bay going into Dallas, getting seven and a half. Green Bay is probably one of the hottest teams in football. Dallas just struggles at times. You can't figure them out. Mike McCarthy, to me, will not cover the spread. I think, well, Dallas might still win. Give me the Packers plus seven and a half. So of all the games that are out there, there's six games this weekend. Those are the two that interest me the most. I'd love to get Dan's thoughts because thank God I'm not going head to head with Dan this year because I would be getting blasted. Yeah, just to be very clear, when you were on that heater, okay, two years ago, Ago. For shits and giggles, I was just taking the other side of it. And we did square off for a $10,000. We finished it off, and I think we gave it to Team Rubicon, wasn't it? It was. I the, believe yeah, so. Yeah, and that was for a great cause, but I was just being stupid. But you do a lot of work on this thing. And again, I don't want to go against a handicapper. I'm just kind of throwing out bets on the DraftKings here. You know what I mean? So I- I'm with you, Danny. I like to take your picks. Where everything isn't meant to be okay. In television dreams of tomorrow. We're not the ones who are meant to follow, for that's enough to argue. I'll say this. I hope you're following us. 
I hope you don't think we're collective American idiots, but we're much smarter having spent the last 40 minutes with Dan Greenhouse. So Dan, thanks for joining us on the tape. For the third time, we'll have you back soon. Thank you guys very much. This was a pleasure. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.